Hello, and welcome to Philosophy Universe, a podcast about science fiction, philosophy, and fantasy. This is episode one, Captain Pike and the Evil Genius. Can Pike escape the cage? This is our beginning episode, and what better for our first episode than to talk about the first episode of one of the most philosophical science fiction shows ever produced. I'm talking, of course, of Star Trek and the pilot that never aired, The Cage. Now, Star Trek eventually became a very successful franchise with many spin-offs and movies that never achieved the campy glory of the original show. But it had some rough beginnings. For one thing, its first episode, the pilot, was never aired. It was actually rejected by the network, which asked its creator, Gene Roddenberry, to make another pilot. Among other issues, check this. The first officer of the Enterprise was a woman, and this was in a 60s show. So some executive objected, no one is going to believe such a thing. I mean, science fiction is one thing, but a woman commanding a spaceship. Have you lost your mind, Roddenberry? So the creator had to scramble and put together a different crew. Almost everybody was replaced, and only good old Spock survived. Now, so as not to waste it, the pilot itself was later cut to pieces and made into a double episode on season one, which is called The Menagerie, which is actually pretty difficult to watch. It is, you know, one of those trial episodes in which they just argue for a bit and they all look at the screen and magically everything that they need to know is edited as a TV show and then they argue a little bit more and so on. But the original was restored recently and it really holds its ground. In fact, it regales us with one of the most philosophically interesting situations of the original run. Here's what happens. The crew receives, of course... Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! The following episode has major spoilers for the Star Trek episode The Cage and for René Descartes' book Philosophical Meditations. Hmm. So, here's what happens. The crew receives, of course, some mysterious distress signal, and they land on a planet where a scientific expedition was lost a long time ago. They actually find some survivors, a few old men and, of course, a very attractive young lady named Vina, who immediately falls for the captain. This is not T.J. Kirk, but his predecessor, Captain Pike. While the rest of the crew is distracted, Vina leads him to a hidden elevator among some rocks, and they disappear underground. At this point, the rest of the survivors mysteriously vanish into thin air. It turns out they were just illusions. Of course, the crew tries to rescue the captain, but no matter what they use, they cannot make a dent on the elevator's entrance. In the meantime, Captain Pike has some rather weird stuff going on he finds himself relieving some of his old adventures, except that in this case, the girl Bina is in all of them. He has to rescue her from some evil, hairy dude dressed like a hun or something, and uh, then he finds himself in a picnic next to his ancestral home, and then in some sort of harem, and the girl is there doing some dancing, and she's all green for some reason. But whenever the visions come to an end, he finds himself trapped instead in a glass cell, which could be some sort of alien zoo. 
So what is going on? Pike is no fool. He uses every experience to gather information on the situation, and piecing things together, he eventually finds out that this planet is ruled by some aliens with huge brains, the Talosians, who can just make you see and experience whatever they want through their powerful telepathy. They can also mentally torture you if you don't play along, so you better. But here is the worst part. Their power is so great that even if you know you're being deceived, you cannot tell what is real and what is not. So how could you ever escape this cage? This interesting scenario is not completely original. Believe it or not, it was advanced by a 16th century philosopher, René Descartes, and it's one of the most famous mental experiments in history. Here's some point about this week's philosopher. René Descartes was born in 1596 in France. He lived most of his life in the Netherlands, though. He was what we philosophers call a rationalist, someone whose philosophical method depends mostly on reason, to the extent to which the experience of our senses becomes at most secondary. We often call this kind the armchair philosophers, someone who does philosophy while comfortably reclining by a fireplace, and that's how people often picture Descartes. But he was, in fact, quite the adventurer. He studied law to please his father, and then he enrolled as a mercenary in the Dutch army, where he became an army engineer of sorts, and during one of his campaigns, he had some weird dream. It made him question his life and go into philosophy instead. But before writing anything down, he traveled all through Europe. And yes, that's the way to do it. Descartes, by the way, was also a formidable mathematician, the inventor of analytic geometry and precisely of Cartesian coordinates. So when the crew of the Enterprise used coordinates to aim their phasers or lock in their teleporter, they owe this to Descartes. When you use X, Y, and Z to designate unknown quantities, well, that's something that Descartes came up with. Descartes is also a very readable philosopher. He wrote for the general public, and you can read him directly by downloading his shorter book, The Philosophical Meditations, or his longer text, The Discourse on Method. These books are in the public domain, so I will try to have the links in our website. Descartes was deeply concerned with our ability to know anything with certainty. He could not figure out why, when scientists and mathematicians apparently were all getting along, philosophers seemed to never agree on anything. So he devised a way of doing philosophy that he hoped would lead to unmovable certainty. He wrote, I must once for all undertake to rid myself of all the opinions which I had previously accepted, and begin to build anew from the foundation if I want to establish any firm and permanent structure in the sciences. And so this was his project. This is a method that he called methodical doubt. He proposed to call to question everything he believed in, even things he was certain about, until he could find something that was rationally impossible to doubt. It was not that Descartes really, for practical purposes, doubted everything, but he proposed that to build from certain foundations, you should start by doubting everything at least theoretically. Continue living your life, but don't ascend philosophically to anything that you can have any doubts about. And here is where things get complicated. 
the first thing that the card doubts is precisely the information from our senses. You know how many times people say, I will believe it when I see it. Well, for most of us, it is our senses that bring that cozy feeling of certainty. Things are just as we see or as we feel or as we can touch them. But the car cleverly puts this into doubt. Pay attention first to how our senses tend to deceive us on basic things. Look at the sun. They tell us it's really a gigantic ball of fire. But according to my eyes, it is no bigger than my thumb. The building I live in, the car I was just driving, they don't look any bigger either if I look at them from some distance. So, how can I trust my eyes? Perspective, optical illusions, you may say, but it gets worse. What about when we dream? When we're dreaming, aren't we for the most part convinced that we are in weird places that are not our bed, having to deal with people we haven't seen in a while, who are acting really strangely and shouldn't be there at all? Also, why am I naked and where are all my teeth? Shouldn't that really tip us off that something is not quite right? But here is the weirdest thing about dreams. It doesn't occur to us while we are dreaming that we are in a dream. For the most part, it doesn't. We behave and feel like it's really happening. Some of you may say, still, I can sort of tell when I'm not dreaming. Things make a bit more sense. Everything is not so blurry. I can actually read books, which I can't when I'm dreaming. If I fall, it really hurts, and so forth. Dreams can be confusing, but being awake, not so much. But here's where the car made his coup de grace. And he would have said that, because you know, he was French and a soldier. Imagine now some super powerful being, some evil genius, who delights in seeing me deceived, and who has the power to make me sense and experience everything he wants. How would I ever be the wiser? How would I ever break from the clutches? of this evil genius's power. It is just a hypothesis for Descartes. But the point is, how would you ever be able to disprove that it is so? I'm only going to tell you the first steps out of this philosophical quicksand as Descartes made them. The last steps are more complicated and less convincing, so maybe we will tackle them in a future episode. But here's for the first one. So here we are unable to tell whether what we sense and experience is real. Well, what about our other ideas? Other things we have in our mind. They could have been placed there by the evil genius. So, what do we know for certain? Well, here is one thing. I do know that I am doubting. Think about it for a second. The reason you aren't certain of anything is because you engage in this exercise of doubting. So at least you know that you are doubting. Now, says Descartes, if I doubt, then I think. Isn't that so? Doubting is a form of thinking. So if I am aware of my doubting, ergo, and that means therefore in Latin, I know that I think. But how could I be thinking anything if I don't exist? Well, I can't. Not me at least. Therefore, I exist. I am. This is, in case you miss it, where the famous phrase I think, therefore I am comes from. In Latin it goes cogito, I think, ergo sum, therefore I am. It sums up Descartes' first, second, and third steps into the land of certainty. 
That's a certainty that no degree of evil genius can take away from me and you. It can make us believe in everything, but it can't make us believe that we exist if we don't. Could it make me believe that I don't exist? Hmm, I haven't thought about that. The question kind of reminds me of the vicious backblatter beast of trial, one of the creatures that appears in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. The creature is vicious and it's deadly, but it's so dumb that if you close your eyes and don't look at it, it thinks that it doesn't exist. So maybe there's something there. Right now, though, we can at least see a general solution or at least a tool to resolve Captain Pike's problem. The thing is, if you cannot trust your senses, at least you still have your reason to guide you through. How do we realize that what our eyes are showing us is an optical illusion? Well, not through our eyes. They will keep showing us the same things over and over. It's our reason that tells us not to follow blindly the data of our eyes. Think of an entire theater watching an illusionist cap their lovely assistant in two equal halves. Why doesn't the entire theater get up horrified at this inhuman act? They throw up in horror, and then they tear the illusionist to pieces. Well, that's because, despite what our senses are showing us, our reason is quietly telling us that this is what you came to watch. An illusionist pretending to cut a person in two. That's the whole point of the show to make you nearly believe that something magical is happening, to deceive your senses while your reason tells you that this is not so. Now, how does this help Captain Pike? Well, it does. He begins to gather information on what the big-headed aliens can do and what they can't. He is relentless about this. He's actually a very intense and interesting character. He doesn't have the smugness of Kirk, so he doesn't have the same comedic possibilities, so ultimately I think that William Shatner was a better choice. But still, Pack finds that while the aliens can make you see things, they cannot really affect the physical objects themselves. They can only affect your perception. So he reasons it through. He still has his futuristic weapon, his phaser, and it should have a charge. And from what he has learned, it should still be working. How come then that it is not able to cut through the glass walls of his prison? Well, reason Spike, it must have broken through. If the phaser is still charged, and I pointed it and I shot at the glass, then the glass should not be there anymore. It's only my senses that are telling me that there is still glass. And lo and behold, it is so. The wicked glass is gone. The way is open for his escape. In truth, this is the second step to Pike's escape. I forgot to tell you about his fight with Bigfoot, but you can look it up yourself. Now, you may be saying, good for him, but how does this help me as a human being? Is this what philosophy does? Abstract thinking about fantastic notions? Well, yes, philosophy does a lot of that. Although we call them mental experiments, not fantastic notions. But it also does what we call applications. When you apply philosophical ideas, what you do is discover ways in which those ideas, which maybe look abstract and remote, can actually illuminate our daily life. So think about this, for example. Just a little taste of this application. How much of our reality do we know by what the media tells us? We don't have really the time or the money to go around the world checking everything that the media is telling us. So then, should we trust the media blindly? 
conservative, radical, center-left, center-right, independent. Every side has an agenda your reason should be telling you. And as a consequence, the temptation and the motivation to feed us, let us call them modified versions of reality. Exaggerated somehow, dramatized, toned down, sanitized. The image, the analogy of the evil genius seems pretty relevant if you think of it that way. Trusting the media blindly doesn't sound like the best idea then, unless you love being manipulated by an evil genius or by someone with regular intelligence. But then, what do we do? Well, here's a general idea. We use our reason. We examine the information carefully and ask ourselves questions. Questions like, is this likely? Is this a bit too bizarre? Is this a bit too convenient? Is this too good to be true? Would a person with such a character really stand behind their words? Would this media platform tell me all the truth if it were inconvenient to them? What are they not saying? How can I find out more? This is not a perfect solution, but it is a start. If you think that this is difficult, though, think about this. What if your whole society was keeping you blind? What if a whole society was structured to keep its citizens in the dark, looking at shadows? This is the stuff, of course, of dystopian novels. So, since we are doing first evers, let's take a look at the very first ever dystopian story. It was written by none other than the fabulous Plato. So join us next time as we ask the question, can we escape the cave? Next week in Philosophy Universe. By the way, if you want to read Plato's Allegory of the Cave, which we will be talking about on our next episode, I will put it in our website. It's just three pages long, so why not? See ya. See ya.